This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't think, even with the events that we saw yesterday involving the movement out of Russia in Eastern Europe, I don't think there is a more interesting international relationship in the world than the relationship between the United States and China. If you look at it on the one hand, it looks like we're the best of friends. They lend us all sorts of money, and uh, we're happy to borrow more, 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 and more. They're happy to provide all audiences for American television and movies, or are they? And uh, we're happy to have Chinese audiences as vehicle for every wide variety of American pop culture. If you look at a lot of the goods that we buy each and every day in the United States, they're made in one place. China, on the other hand, if you look at uh, the handling of COVID, if you look at the tensions related to everything from human rights abuses to uh, the Olympics, not to mention a host of other issues related to the economy, it looks increasingly like we're rivals. So is China our best friend or our worst enemy? Does the truth lie somewhere in between? Those are a few of the issues that have been explored by Isaac Stonefish in his latest book. Isaac Stonefish is the founder and CEO of Strategy Risks. He is also a Washington Post global opinions contributing columnist and author of the book America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Isaac, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. So, Isaac, I understand you're actually fluent in Mandarin Chinese. How does one become fluent in Mandarin Chinese, being an American growing up in the United States? I grew up in Syracuse. Uh, Loved my parents, but wanted to get as far away from Syracuse as possible. So I started going to China when I was 17, went to Xinjiang in the West and Tibet the summer after that, studied Chinese all throughout college and then moved there at 21 after graduating. Now, I am a fan of certain types of Chinese cuisine, but I've always heard from people that have been to China that the Chinese food in China is not really like the Chinese food that you get in uh, a lot of American Chinese restaurants. Set us straight, Isaac. What's the key difference between Chinese food in China versus Chinese food in America? such a massive variety of different types of Chinese food in China. And every once in a while, you'll stumble on something that has a lot of similarities between, say, you know, mushu vegetables or a scallion pancake. But there's such a, a rich smorgasbord of different types of things, uh, some very tasty, some quite gross, but always keeps you keeps you excited. All right. Um, what is the problem with China, whether we're talking human rights, whether we're talking the environment, whether we're talking the economy, in your view, uh, what are the problems with China as a member of the international community? The problem with China is the problem with the Chinese Communist Party, the government that has ruled China since Mao Zedong took over in 1949. And The issue there is that it is a Leninist political system that seeks to subvert individual interests for the benefit of the party. And before, a couple of years ago, most of this burden was put overwhelmingly on the shoulders of the Chinese people. But as China has grown more and more powerful, it's been able to exert more and more influence globally in ways that are starting to become more and more inimical to certain U.S. values and, frankly, 
certain Chinese values as well, because they're they're not Chinese values. They're the Communist Party's values. How did China, now that the Olympics have just wrapped up, there was certainly a lot of controversy about China even being host to the Olympics this year. How did they do, in your judgment, as a as an objective observer of them being a host country? How did China fare? I am definitely not an objective observer. I have too many, <laughs> many stakes in that game. But I will say expectations were incredibly low for Beijing hosting the Winter Olympics. And beautiful thing about low expectations doesn't take too much to meet them. So I think the they did that. <laughs> there was no major, major scandal that came from this Olympics. And now the narrative has already shifted towards Russia. So I, I think for them, it was a great and resounding success. There was some speculation that part of the reason that Vladimir Putin put off an incursion into Ukraine was because of the Olympics and because of Russia's increasingly cozy relationship with China. Do you buy that at all? I do believe that it's very possible he thought he'd have more ability to do this after a little bit more breathing room. I, I have a lot of suspicion that Russia and China's relationship is all that cozy. I think Beijing uh, looks down on Moscow and sees them very much as a junior partner. And I think Russia has a lot of fear. <clears throat> I think Russia has a lot to fear from China, in part because of their overlapping interests in Central Asia, in part because of fears of Chinese territorial enrichment into Russia, and especially in the Far East, and in part because of Chinese influence operations in Russia. But I, I do think the timing has worked out well for both sides. As far as the Olympics goes, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that there was a Uyghur who was uh, doing the Olympic torch lighting. What is the significance of that? Why was that so controversial? Imagine the 1936 Olympics in Germany having a Jewish torchbearer. It was really, really galling because of what Beijing has been doing to the Uyghur people. They're a mostly Muslim minority in the northwest Chinese region of Xinjiang. Uh, Beijing, over the last several years, has been committing genocide against the Uyghur people. Upwards of a million Muslims have been in concentration camps. Beijing constantly denies, obfuscates, downplays its crimes in Xinjiang. And doing this is just a really big middle finger, not only to the international community, but to its own citizens. What was it? And what are they doing to the Uyghurs? Uh, we hear uh, the word genocide thrown about a lot. We hear the word persecution. Who are the Uyghurs and why is the Chinese Communist Party so eager to go after them? Beijing likes to say that there are 56 ethnic groups in China, 55 minorities and the majority Han. Han are about 92% of the population. 8% of the rest live mostly in the West. The Uyghurs live in the far Northwest, bordering Pakistan and Kazakhstan. There's about roughly 11 million of them. And a huge percentage, 10, 20, maybe even 30%, you know, have been in what are best termed concentration camps mm. where they've been tortured, they've been abused, they've been forced to eat pork, forced to drink alcohol, uh, forced to pledge allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. The reason we call it genocide is because of the forced sterilizations against Uyghur women and the drastically reduced birth rate 
in Xinjiang because of these sterilizations. The as far as the Olympics goes, obviously, with all the issues that China has been responsible for in the Chinese Communist Party, and you've just mentioned a few, there was a lot of um, questions about the sponsors of these games. There was a lot of questions being posed to the athletes that were participating in these games. Do you feel like this was an unfair position for the athletes and the sponsors of these games to be put in to be asked questions? about uh, geopolitical issues that they may not know anything about? I think once you become famous, once your company becomes large enough, people are going to start asking you these questions because your interests start to expand. And I think it behooves athletes and especially the companies to have a sense of what the geopolitical reality is and then make a decision whether or not you want to say anything about it. We've certainly seen, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Isaac Stonefish. He's the author of the book America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. We've certainly seen the United States boycott certain Olympics games before. Should the United States have sat this one out in protest, in your view? Gosh, it's such a good question. The diplomatic boycott, had some PR effect. I think it's very difficult, it, or rather, it's very easy for me to say, hey, athletes have been training for a lifetime, sit this one out because of the atrocities that Beijing is committing. I, I think the American people did the right thing with these Olympics and mostly ignored them. They were the least watched Olympics, I mm. think, since they started keeping records of them. And and uh, what was the diplomatic boycott? Uh, there was uh, a lot of discussion that maybe this was something that didn't have any real effect. What form did the diplomatic boycott actually take? Beijing's intense paranoia on COVID meant that even if the U.S. weren't diplomatically boycotting, there'd still be a very limited number of officials there. It just meant that no prominent U.S. politicians were attending. Often it's a good time to build goodwill mm. between politicians of one country and another. And in this case, the U.S., I would say, rightly decided to just sit that one out. Let's talk about the fundamental premise of your book, that America's elites are making not America stronger, but making China stronger. How are they doing that? How are, uh, how are our country's elites making China into a stronger, more prosperous nation? Some wealthy Americans over the last several decades have chosen to amplify China's strength, suppressing its weaknesses, have chosen to divert criticism from China, have chosen to say, listen, we are going to overlook the bad, just focus on the good so that we can increase our own influence and so that this is just the way we think, <laughs> the way we think the world should be. Uh, you write a bit about Henry Kissinger, for instance. What's he doing? So Kissinger, until the until he left office uh, following the Jimmy Carter's victory in the in the seventy six election, was a politician, was a diplomat, was a statesman. In nineteen eighty two, he founded a consulting company, Kissinger Associates, and then he became a businessman. And there's nothing wrong with going into business. Uh, plenty of people do it. That's, that's what I do. The issue is that Kissinger pretended he wasn't a businessman and pretended he was still a statesman. And so he would advocate for pretended China, to for who? The Chinese pretended Party, to the to the American people. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And he was a very effective communicator and very effective at hiding that (laughs) this is what he was doing. And still today, people will quote and cite Kissinger as this, you know, grand intellect and really downplay what's been writing his, you know, his paychecks for decades. So how has China been writing his paychecks? So it's been the process works as such. Uh, U.S. companies seeking to expand their business in China will hire former officials who run consulting companies to help them get the right meetings, get the permits that they need. Uh, Kissinger, Albright, Scowcroft, um, big names in the foreign policy field. And these companies will pay you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of retainers so that they get the right meeting, so that Kissinger or Albright will, will write them the right email. And in exchange, the quid pro quo is that these retired officials won't publicly criticize China in a way that would reflect a more accurate reflection of the situation. They, it's a very sophisticated system. It's not as basic as this, but basically it's, it's money for silence and money for advocating for policies that benefit Beijing. One of the people that uh, critics of the Biden administration love to criticize is Hunter Biden. And one of the things that frequently gets thrown out about him is that certain foreign governments would use him to curry favor with the U.S. government. In your view, is Hunter Biden one of the elites that you're that you're talking about in this book? I always found the story of Neil Bush far more compelling. We have so much more evidence about what Neil Bush did. Neil Bush was the brother of uh, George W. Bush and the son of George H. W. Bush and has a long and very distinguished career doing business in China. That's not to say that Biden doesn't have ties to China. It's just that there's a lot more out there on Bush. And perhaps once we have a little bit more time and more reporting is done on Hunter Biden, more will come out. But in terms of what is actually been able to be proven a lot more from from Neil Bush when we talk about families. I will say, though, that this is a very bipartisan phenomenon. That's exactly Uh, what I was going to ask. Is there is there there's no partisan leanings that former Republican officials are any more likely to be getting paid by China than Democratic officials? Well, so uh, just to be clear, sometimes people will take money directly from the party. Sometimes they'll take it from they don't enterprises. Most often it's from U.S. companies seeking to do business in China. In terms of the breakdown, I'd, I'd love to have someone do a study on the lobbying and on the, the deal making and see if there is a political leaning. I think anecdotally, it seems to be a, when you talk about secretaries of state, national security advisors, it seems to be a little bit more Republican. And then when you talk about ex-senators, it seems to be a little bit more Democrat, but I haven't done an actual careful count on that. So I wouldn't say for sure. One of the things that I've been amazed by on the one hand and troubled by on the other is the role that uh, China has had on affecting the types of films that American audiences can see. It seems like there have been 
tremendous editorial shifts in the kinds of movies that Hollywood has produced over the course of the last 20 years to uh, appeal to Chinese audiences. We've seen big budget motion picture after big budget motion picture that features either the country of China or a Chinese government official, including some cases a communist Chinese general, uh, as the hero or at least a co-hero. That's not just my imagination, is it? Not at all. It's very striking to see how much Hollywood has amplified positive Chinese voices and suppressed negative Chinese voices. And and it's a really sad kind of censorship because it creates this cartoonish portrayal of Chinese people. If you just portray the positive, you're, you're not portraying the reality. And for any race, for any type of person, they're complicated people. <laughs> we all are. And so just putting out positive creatures doesn't in any way build understanding. It's just a way of creating favor. It's also, I would say, less about trying to pander to Chinese audiences and, and much more trying to pander to the Chinese Communist Party. Because Which a lot is of Chinese... even more disturbing. Oh, That's even more even disturbing. More disturbing. Exactly. A lot of Chinese audiences would love to see complex portrayals of Chinese people. I mean, they see that sometimes in Chinese movies, but they can't see that in Hollywood because Hollywood's decided to just listen to the party. So uh, give us a couple of examples, if you would, of how we went from um, or even an explanation of how we went from films like Seven Years in Tibet, which would cover China critically, and films like Red Corner, uh, which would cover uh, China critically, both very, very good films and uh, told part of a complicated story and had uh, good guys and bad guys in both of those films that were Chinese, to now where you can't make a big budget film unless it features a Chinese uh, superhero of some sort? It's a long and in some ways subtle process, but basically what happened was Beijing banned the studios that made those films, especially Disney, and they kept Disney in the dark and told them what they needed to do or alluded to them what they needed to do in order to apologize, in order to get back into Beijing's graces. And studios are are part, uh, mostly part of these major businesses. And the studios were afraid, oh, if we make something that's critical of Beijing, we will lose the opportunity to do business on another arm uh, of our multinational. And it didn't happen overnight. Studios would learn what Beijing would like, what they wouldn't like, and what Beijing likes and didn't like changes. And sometimes depends on the official in the censorship body that's, that's doing it. But you know, basically, since 2012, 2013, with uh, China's new leader, Xi Jinping, taking power and the Chinese economy being a, a strong enough percentage of Hollywood box office gross, just decided to stop having critical portrayals of China anywhere in a major film. We've seen a lot of uh, criticism of how the NBA has handled their relationship with China, particularly as it as it relates to the criticism that was expressed by the uh, Houston Rockets uh, general manager over the Hong Kong issue and China's treatment of Hong Kong. What do we know about the NBA and how uh, they interact with China and the Chinese government these days? The NBA... They, they 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 go back and forth about how critical they're willing to be about Beijing. I mean, I, I think what we're watching now is is what happened to Ennis Cantor, 
the Boston Celtics player uh, who's since been terminated, uh, some folks believe, well, terminated across a few different staffs, some folks believe, because he's been so outwardly critical of Beijing, and a very, very rare voice in that. And a lot of NBA teams would strongly prefer to expand in China than to allow for freedom of speech in the United States. And that has provoked some pretty gleeful responses from U.S. elected officials, especially Republican senators, who chafe under criticism from, say, LeBron James, but wonder why he won't take that same critical eye to far clearer violations in China uh, than he does in the United States. Are there any other major corporations whose bending to the will of the Chinese government is particularly noticeable? Tesla, uh, I I feel, (laughs) is uh, fairly, gosh, what's the right word, Uh, fairly extreme in what they've done. They opened a showroom in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, on New Year's Eve, not long after the Biden administration passed a law restricting exports from Xinjiang to the United States because we don't want goods imported into this country that have been made with forced labor. Uh, so Tesla has been, <laughs> been pretty out there. Airbnb uh, has dozens of property across Xinjiang, or at least did as of a couple months ago. And had properties owned by an organization called the XPCC, which is sanctioned by the U.S. government and which is complicit in some of the crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. So there's a, there's a long list of companies. Those are two of my favorite, more egregious examples. Mm. It's 50 years ago this week that uh, President Nixon went to China and uh, met with Mao and opened up relations with the communist Chinese government. Prior to that, the the Chinese government that we recognized was the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan. And through the prism of hindsight, seeing that we've seen what we've seen for the last 50 years, was Nixon right or wrong? I would say Nixon was right and Kissinger was wrong. I think it was great that we brought China back into the world, as Nixon said in the foreign affairs essays a few years before, that we don't want to leave 800 million people on the outside to to nurture their grievances and, and to build their hatreds. And the problem with China came, I would argue, much later. It was the 90s, it was the 2000s. It was the focus listening to the business community at the expense of other communities. It was Bush's distraction after 9-11 that led to basically almost ignoring China in D.C. from 2001 to 2005. It was the idea of making China a responsible stakeholder in a global system that it had very little interest in being a responsible stakeholder in. And it was the Obama administration's inability to find any sort of real way to handle China. And there was a lot of disastrous things that Trump did while president. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but uh, it was nice to see the Trump administration start to push back in a more firm fashion against some of the things that Beijing was doing. Since you mentioned the Trump policy 
with respect to China. How does the the Trump administration approach to China compare with the Biden administration uh, approach to China? It's so difficult for a lot of everyday Americans to kind of see through the fog of partisan media and understand what uh, our government officials are actually doing on the China question. As you see it, how does the Biden policy on China differ or, uh, you know, differ or not differ from the Trump policy on China? It's remarkably similar. One of the things that is different is the Biden administration is working more with U.S. allies globally to push back against Beijing. They're putting a heavier focus on climate as part of their negotiations, which in the beginning allowed for I would argue, too much flexibility with Beijing and not enough rigorousness. They're being slightly more organized. Uh, Policymaking is is a chaotic world. Biden administration is being slightly better about that than the Trump administration. But I would argue on the China question, they are more notable for their consistencies than their differences. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, With respect to Taiwan, what do you think that the United States policy should be these days? Uh, Would you recognize Taiwan as an independent country if uh, any president asked for your advice on how to handle Taiwan? That's a great question. I would say that is a good goal to have. And the question is, how do you get there? Beijing has been so effective at salami slicing away from the idea of Taiwan being a country and raising the cost on any moves that legitimize its international status. And I would say, do the same thing in the reverse. You start taking steps that allow for the perception of Taiwan as a country. You start moving in that direction and then eventually, hopefully you get there. Do you see any reason for optimism? Are there any hopes for reform of the of the Chinese communist government or have the last few years allowed them an opportunity to cement their place as the, you know, the leaders of China in a particularly cruel manner even more? So the funny way to answer this question, but Chinese elite politics are so incredibly opaque and it's possible that Xi Jinping will be deposed quite soon. It's possible that he'll you know, die in bed having served as the longest chairman of China you know, 30 years from now. My optimism with China comes from just the many lovely people that I met in my seven years in the country and the sacrifices that they are making today for their country. And It's one of those things that the the less we know about it publicly, the higher the chance it has of succeeding. But I I do place hope that at some point, you know, in in our lifetimes or our children's lifetime, people of China will actually be allowed to state and, and write and create their own destiny. One of the things that I love about your book and your subsequent writings is that you make clear that it's possible to despise the China and still have a lot of respect and admiration for Chinese culture, the Chinese people and Chinese history. There's no contradiction there, is there? There's none at all. And the party wants us to think that those are huge contradictions, that only they can speak for China. They are China. They represent China. But really don't want us to be repeating Chinese propaganda or 
getting our thoughts shoehorned into those ideas. Uh, finally, it's no secret that China has mishandled many different aspects of the COVID uh, pandemic and were dishonest, not only with their own people, but w- with the world about their handling of it and even their knowledge of the pandemic. There have been a lot of calls over the course of the last two years for some sort of public reparations for China's handling of this virus, particularly as more people uh, become believers in the lab late the lab leak hypothesis as you see it do you think china should face any sort of international penalty for their role in the covid pandemic politics is the art of the possible and i think if depending on who's asking if this feels like an effective public relations strategy to further change the global narrative on china uh, then i would support it but i think the chances of it succeeding of, of there ever being any sort of reparations are basically zero and so I think the question is, is this the most effective strategy to, to create support for a particular movement, or is there a better way to do it? And if there's a better way to do it, then I'm for that. Isaac Stonefish, wishing you the best of luck with the book. If people are interested, we didn't even scratch the surface of all the various ways that America's elites are making China stronger. Check out the book. It's called America Second. It's available wherever books are sold. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you, Frank. Enjoyed it.